At this point in the service, children in kindergarten through second grade are welcome to primary church. And if the rest of you would pray with me. Father, I pray as we come before you uh, this day, as we come toward the end of the book of Revelation, uh, we look at a passage that is uh, very famous, it's very well known on one hand. On the other hand, it's not particularly heeded. I pray that you would come, and for those of us who are sleepy in our faith, those of us who perhaps think we know Jesus but never really have trusted him, I pray that you would open our eyes. I pray that for myself that you'd be in my head and in my thinking and my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen and amen. You know, 1985, the very beginning, January 1985, I'd gone through uh, basic training and airborne school and ranger indoctrination program and got to a ranger battalion. And one of the things that, that immediately impressed me was um, the fact that at the Ranger Battalion they had quotes written on the walls, sort of motivational quotes. My favorite one, the one that was most helpful to me, was uh, Latin, mala malis facimus, right? We do bad things to bad people. One that was not particularly helpful to me was one in our barracks as you walk through. It was a quote by a, a Native American, an Indian chief named Red Hand Brule. And the quote said, as you walked out the door, the last thing you read was, a true warrior looks death in the eye and says, today is a good day to die. I remember looking at that every day. That wasn't particularly helpful. And the reason it wasn't helpful is because once I started doing things, I realized that in reality, people didn't really believe that. In other words, you could say, today, the true warrior looks death in the eye and believes that today is a good day to die. Except when you think the plane's going to crash, then everyone starts praying no matter what their religious background. Today's a good day to die except when you're being shot at. It's a good day to die except when you hear bullets whizzing, except when things are blowing. It's, it's almost never a good day to die, to be honest with you. But people say that to sort of buck up. And so the question is, if it's not a good day to die, why isn't it a good day to die? Why are most people afraid of dying? Most people are afraid of dying either because of what they think they're going to lose or because it's so completely unknown what's going to happen. I can remember people, men who are the most wild people I ever met in my life, and you'd be on an airplane and they would fly a nap of the earth. That's where you, you fly 800 feet no matter what the earth does. And suddenly the people would start just praying and bowing their heads because they didn't know. You see... The, the, the ideal answer is, is how do you know today is a good day to die is if you know what's coming after. If you knew for sure what was coming after and you could actually face it with confidence, then you could actually say today is a good day to die. So as we go through the book of Revelation, we've gotten to a point in the book of Revelation where we're actually going to see what happens. So at the end of this, this, this sermon, you could walk out of here and say, well, you know what? Today is a good day to die. I'd rather live, but it's a good day to die. I'm, I'm secure and safe in that. You see, because today we're looking at what's famously known as the great white throne judgment in the book of Revelation. Interestingly enough, last week we looked at the first half of chapter 20, and the first half of chapter 20 in the book of Revelation is one of the most complicated, uh, confusing, contentious passages in the whole book. Maybe in the whole Bible, right? It's about the millennium, and where do you stand on the millennium, and are you amill, pre-mill, post-mill, what are you? 
What's interesting to me is that right on the heels of one of the most um, controversial passages of the New Testament in the book of Revelation is the most non-controversial passage in the New Testament, is the simplest passage, one of them, in the New Testament. In other words, if you're a Christian here and, and you come from, whether you're a Baptist, Presbyterian, Methodist, Episcopal, if you come from some tradition that actually believes the Bible, almost every Christian believes the Apostles' Creed. It's almost by definition that's what they believe. And remember, in the Apostles' Creed, one of the lines is, we believe that Jesus will come to judge what? The quick and the dead. As in the EPC, that's one of our essentials. They don't tell you what position you have to take on anything, but one of the essentials of the EPC's uh, doctrine that everyone's agreed to is that Jesus will come back to judge the quick and the dead. So that's what we're going to look at today in this this book, in chapter 20. Before we do that, we need to do a little bit of review First, we're going to look, I want to talk to you for a minute about the original audience because I think it'll be helpful for our context and also about the purpose of the book in general. Remember the original audience of this book. It was, a, it was a book that was sort of three different types of literature that was mashed up into one. It was a letter, first of all, written to seven churches. And all of the seven churches had the same problem. They had it to different degrees, but the problem was this, is that Jesus was calling them to be outwardly faced. He was calling them to bear witness to those in their community and around them, in spite of and in the face of Roman persecution. In other words, the government was saying, don't do that, or the government was saying, if you do this, we're going to affect you economically. And what the book of Revelation does, is says you need to tell people about Jesus anyhow. And you can imagine, these churches, they would have probably been started around the the middle, late part of the first century, and John writes this letter about 30 years later. And so what you've got also in all the seven churches, in fact, all the churches in the New Testament, is all the churches are churches that are probably going through some kind of transition, where the first generation is is trying to, to figure out either, A, how do we hand this church over to the second generation, or B, how do we keep it like this until we die? Either way... And you can imagine the conversations that go on. Some people saying, we need to be, obey the Great Commission. And other people saying, oh, we need to obey the Great Commandment. And other people saying, oh, well, we got lots of programs here, right? Ephesus. Remember, Ephesus was a big, wealthy church. They had all the programs. They did everything right. They had good doctrine. And yet, Jesus says, I have this against you. you fail. You've lost your first love. You're not outwardly faced. And some people say, all you talk about is being outwardly faced. We need to take care of people inside. I know you haven't heard that ever. You know, I read a book this past week, or actually it was a week ago, uh, by a guy named Kaisers. His last name is called Winning on Purpose. And if you ask people a question, what kind of church should you be? If you, say, if you, ask them, if, if, if you had a choice, should a church be, number one, outwardly faced, number two, inwardly faced, or number three, both? What would most people say? Of course, most people would say both if they're Christians. But what evidence tells us over and over again, if you say both, you only end up with number two, inwardly faced. Why? Because the squeaky wheel gets the grease. And so you have, if you focus on being outwardly faced, then you actually end up doing both. And part of, remember we talked about last week as well, that we make, we are disciples in order to make disciples. There's not a difference between inside and outside. And the first, the churches in the first century had to deal with that. In fact, if you think about every letter in the New Testament, Every letter is written to some church that's dealing with some major issue that has to do with change in the congregation. And what the answer is every time is the gospel. Do you understand the gospel? Are you applying the gospel? And are you loving one another according to the gospel? And are you preparing yourself for good works according to the gospel to be outwardly faced and bring other people in? 
And to the seven churches, each one of them, they had to be reminded. And the rest of the book of Revelation actually tells them why they can have confidence that they can be outwardly faced, even to the point of death. And the reason for that is what I've given you is the purpose of the book. And it's just this, that Jesus wins. Jesus has won in the past. He has done everything necessary to to lift the curse from creation, to lift the curse brought upon humanity from Adam, and to pay for for the sins that we have committed. That's done completely in the past. He's completely defeated Satan in the past. He also will win in the future. In other words, there's coming a time. I've said this over and over. There's coming a time where there is no more time. When all of the victories that Jesus won on the cross will be ultimately and completely realized in the, in the present, which will be the future then. So Jesus won in the past, he will win in the future, but more than that, he's winning right now. And the big struggle for all of us is do we really believe that Jesus is winning right now? Do we believe that Jesus is winning right now when I'm going through trials and tribulations in my life? Do we believe that Jesus is winning when things change around me that I feel like I have no control over? The book of Revelation says yes. Jesus is winning, and he has won, and he will win. So when you get to this passage that we're looking at today, it's, it shows not necessarily the ultimate victory of Jesus, but it shows what is at the very end. I mean, today, as I read through this text, and I just started reading commentators and sermons on this text, I was often breathless. Because the passage we're looking at today is about judgment, and we're going to talk about what judgment is on one hand. On the other hand, the passage we're looking at today is about also the end of sin once and for all. In other words, it's it's the end of sin once and for all, cosmically, universally, that ultimately and finally Jesus defeated sin on the cross, but at the great white throne judgment, he completely and utterly deals with it forever. And if you long to live in a place where things are the way they're supposed to be, where people don't sin against you and where you don't sin against other people and against yourself, this is the passage for you. The question is, do you look at it and do you see liberation? Or do you look at this throne and do you, you fear? And hopefully by the end of the, the day today, you will feel some amount of liberation. So as we jump into the, the text Before we do that, I've got to sort of walk you up through the book of Revelation because one theme that's easy to miss, but it's a dominant theme in the whole book, is this theme of God's throne room. The God's throne room shows up in the book of Revelation. If you've been here for a year, and I ask you, how many times do you think God's throne shows up in the book of Revelation? If you've been paying attention, you would say, without even thinking, seven. Everything is seven. Seven of this, seven of that. Seven times God's throne shows up. The first time God's throne shows up is in chapters 4 and 5. And remember, on the throne there you have God the Creator in chapter 4 and God the Redeemer in chapter 5. God that created everything and is sovereign over all the world or in charge of everything that comes to pass. And Jesus, the Lamb who was slain, both sitting on the throne and everyone arrayed about them. As you continue through the book, you get to chapter 7. And in chapter 7, that's where you see uh, God on the throne and you see or Jesus on the throne. And every tribe, tongue, and nation are gathered around the throne singing salvation, honor, glory, and power, whatever that song is there, to the Lamb. So the throne starts with God being the, the, the king over all of creation. And then by the time you get to 7, everyone, all of creation is worshiping around this throne. And then once you get past that, Uh, The throne becomes a place of business, if you will. But the business that the throne is about, basically, is judgment. 
Remember, we talked in the book of Revelation that once we get into the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls, each one of those takes us from, from the beginning of God's judgment at, after the resurrection of Jesus to the very end of time. And so at the end, at the seventh seal, chapter 8, what you see is the seventh seal is opened, all of heaven becomes silent, and the prayers of the, of the saints are around the altar of God and around the throne. So the seventh seal, chapter 8, is also God's throne room. Then you move up to chapter 11 in the seventh trumpet. Also, from the time of Jesus' resurrection till the very end, till judgment. And at judgment, what you find is God's throne. Chapter 16, seven, same thing. Let me read to you part of that. Chapter 16, verses 17 through 21. It says, The seventh angel poured out... To, his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there were peals and flashes of lightning, rumbles, peals of thunder and great earthquakes such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. And remember we talked about that this proclamation. It's the end of history. It is done. And so in some sense you, you could get confused because you say, Well, I thought the history ended at the end of the seventh seal. It did. But remember at seventh seal, it, it, what you had is only a quarter of the earth judged. And with the trumpets, you had a third of the earth judged. With each time the story is retold, more and more of the people are actually under judgment or are suffering the affliction of God. Until then we get to chapter 19, Babylon is also judged. And in verse 5, everyone is praising God because he has judged Babylon from his throne. And so all this judgment is happening until finally the last judgment you see is final judgment, the end of everything. And that's our passage today. This is what's typically known as the great white throne judgment. This is the last throne scene, but also it's the final scene of judgment. In other words, if you've said, gosh, every time I come here, he's saying this is the end, this is the end, this is the end. Today, I mean it. Today, it really is the end of judgment, at least in the book of Revelation that this cycle has repeated itself several times, and now at the very end, this is the final judgment that happens basically it, from the perspective I come from when Jesus returns. Right? So if you read through the gospel, it says the Son of Man will return with his angels, and at, when he returns, that's when judgment will commence. And so as we look into what does this mean, we're going to look at three things basically. We're going to look at the reality of God's judgment. We're going to look at the impartiality of God's judgment, and then lastly, we'll look at the finality of God's judgment. So the reality, the impartiality, and last, the finality. So what do we have in verse 20, or verse 11, rather? Let me read that. John says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. So your first clue that whatever's happening here is at some level symbolic is the way it opens. Right? John says, then I saw. Whenever John says, then I saw, what you're, you're being clued into is what's coming here is symbolic of something. And so what does he see? He says, then I saw a great white throne and him who sits on it. And notice this throne is not just God's throne. For some reason he says it's, it's this, this white throne. And the only logical explanation for that is to signify the, the purity of him who sits on it and the justice and the completion and the perfection and the holiness of the one who sits on it. 
That's what white usually stands for in the book of Revelation. And so the one who sits on this throne is completely qualified and competent to judge. That he is the one who knows everything in and out. Right? In order to judge something, you need to know all the rules, you need to know everything. The one on the throne is the one who is judge. But also, if you look back in the book of Revelation, the one who's on the throne is also the one who's, who created all things, and so he knows all things. But the one who's sitting on the throne is also the Lamb. And the Lamb is the one who actually took the judgment, who took the wrath that he is prepared now to, to mete out. So it's, it's God, because the question is, who is on the throne actually? It just says him. In commentators' debate, is it God the Father or is it Jesus the Lamb? And at the end of the day, I'm not sure it really matters. If, you know, if you're standing in front of the throne, you're going to be sort of nitpicking over who's actually there. It's God, either God in the person of the Father, God the Son, who will be sitting there bringing judgment. And what's interesting here the, the, is this question, is what does it mean when it says, from his presence the earth and sky fled away, no place was found for them. A lot of commentators say the reason the earth and sky fled away is because they were affected by Adam's curse and now at final judgment they can't even be in the presence of God. And I don't believe that. For one, we know that the vision is symbolic. And so what is this symbolic of to say that even the earth and sky fled away? And I think it's symbolic of this. That at the last day, at the last moment, when judgment comes and it's time for judgment, the only people there, the only things there will be God and you. In other words, with earth fleeing away and the sky fleeing away, everything fleeing out of God's presence except the person standing in front of him, there's absolutely no place to hide. That someday we will stand before God and there will be no place to hide. You can't hide behind a rock. You can't hide in the mountains. And if you read through the prophets, they say that. There's no place to hide. That the nature of this judgment will be complete and comprehensive and there's nothing that won't be seen. You'll be completely transparent to the one who sits upon the throne. So there will be this great white throne judgment at the end of all time. That's a reality we learn from John. But what about uh, judgment itself, right? He says, I saw the one sitting, him who seated on it from his, the earth and sky fled away. No place was found for them. And books were opened and all these kinds of things. It, and it hit me as I was thinking through this. Have we ever talked about what judgment is? Most people, if you ask them, what does judgment mean? I don't know that we'd be able to give you a clear answer. I thought through this. Basically, judgment at the end of the day is this. It's a decision or reckoning based on predetermined criteria. In other words, judgment is not wrath. Judgment is not punishment. Judgment is simply a decision. Remember Supreme Court uh, uh, Justice Roberts a while back when, when he, they had the health care stuff and he said, hey, my job is to do what? It's just to call balls and strikes. In other words, a judge doesn't, in theory, a judge doesn't enter his own subjective opinion into things. A judge looks at his or her case law and judges according to what the law says. And so the question is, when you think about judgment, what are the objective criteria by which you and I will be judged? Is there some standard by which we will be judged? And the answer is clearly yes, and it, it, it has to do with law. It has to do with law, I think, on two levels. On one hand, it's just God's law. And if you're not familiar with church, when people say God's law, usually they mean the Ten Commandments. 
And so the question is, if you had to stand before God or Jesus in judgment and him say, okay, I'm going to read through these ten things. It's going to be really simple. I'm just going to read through them. And as I read through them, I want you to just sound off when you, you, know, when you think you've violated something. How many of you could make it through the list in complete silence? You shall have no other gods before me. Crickets? Good. All right, next. No idols. Crickets? Good. Honor your father and mother. I know I skipped. Honor your father and mother. Crickets? Good. Adultery? Good. 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 Oh, you're beautiful. Go on. How many could pass? You see, even when you think about, well, I haven't committed adultery. Remember Jesus, Annie, took things way up in the New Testament, in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember he said, you know, you've heard it said you should not commit adultery, but I say, if you've even considered it in your heart, you're guilty. You've heard it said don't commit murder, but I say, if you've become angry at someone and said, Raka, you fool, you are guilty of hellfire. So when you think about God's law, Especially, by the way, if you're a Christian or you think you're a Christian. Do you ever look at God's law and shudder and say, thank you? Not so much for the law, but thank you that you've provided a way out. You see, because the issue is not only whether or not you can obey God's law perfectly, which for the sake of argument, I'm going to say you can't. You can't even obey your own low standard of morality perfectly. In other words, imagine if you got before the throne and God said, okay, Tommy, here's what I'm going to do. You thought you were a good person your whole life, and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to take my law and I'm just going to put it over here. What I'm going to judge you on, the objective criteria by which I'm going to make a decision of whether you're a go or a no-go, is on your own standard of morality. Now ask yourself this, in your own life, have you always 100% of the time obeyed what you personally thought was the right thing to do? And if you're honest, I've never met a person that said yes. Yeah, no one's perfect. Well, you see, when you stand before an, a completely and utterly objective judge, that matters. I mean, there's consequences. I remember we were talking, my family's been reading through the Shorter Catechism at dinner time. And, and I said, oh, remember that story about what happened to me at seminary? And two of the girls were like, yeah, we've heard it a million times. And one of them said, no, what story? Which means I had permission to tell it again. When I was in seminary, the, 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 there was a person in the class ahead of us who went to be ordained in the same presbytery or area that the seminary was in, and he did not do very well. In fact, he did really bad. And as a result, the seminary was a little embarrassed, and they came back and had a little powwow, and they said, from now on, that's never going to happen to us, so what we're going to do is we're going to make our ne- next students, which was my class, fortunately, um, have to memorize the Shorter Catechism word for word before they leave here. I mean, they were gracious. We'd have to memorize the whole Shorter Catechism. We just had to memorize 35 questions. And there were five that they gave you for extra credit. And what you literally had to do is you had to sit down and write out the answers word for word of all 35 questions before you could graduate. And if you had one word wrong, you failed. Here's how I know that. I'm pretty good at remembering things. And back in the day, I was a little bit cocky. 
And I went and I sat down and I took that test and I wrote out all 35 of those answers in less than a half hour. I was so confident in my answers that I didn't even do any of the extra credit questions. In other words, if you miss one of the 35, but you got one of the five, right, they would be willing to replace it. I was so confident, I didn't even, I don't have time to answer those five extra credit questions. I went in and I said, there you go, Doug. I handed it on the registrar's desk. And everything was going fine until we got to his sanctification. He said, oh, oh, you missed a word here. What word? A. A? Tell me the answer to sanctification. He asked me, what is the answer to sanctification? Sanctification is a work of God's free grace. He said, it's not what you wrote. Sanctification is work of God's free grace. I said, come on. Like, let's pretend like it's Greek and just assume that the A is there. He said, you didn't write it down. Standard is, if you miss a word, if you miss anything, I have to make you retest it. And I pleaded with him, and he would not give up. He said, why didn't you just answer one of the extra credits? I said, well, because I thought I didn't need to. And he said, well, you'll probably know next time, won't you? And I had to go back and take the test, and I answered all five of the extra credits, and I didn't need them that time. But you see, in our lives, we don't tend to think about that, do we? We sort of always want grace. We just expect or hope that people will show us grace. And you know what? Hopefully, most times people do show us grace. But at the end of the age, when you finally are standing before Jesus, and it's you and him, mano a mano, there is no more time for that. There is no more time to say, Jesus, can I have a do-over? I'd like to go retake that test. I'd like to relive my whole life so I can just redo that one area of my life better. It doesn't work that way. Once you are there, you are there, and it's too late. And so when you look at the impartiality of judgment, the impartiality of judgment at some level basically gets down to the fact that the same law and the same standard is used for everybody, but also uh, it's used on everybody. So let me read to you verses 12 and 13. Notice it says, John says, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were open. Then another book was open, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Now, what are we supposed to, to learn from these couple verses about the impartiality of judgment? I could have easily, just as easily said the universality of judgment. He says, I saw the dead, both small and great. So that tells us the whole continuum of people who were dead. But he takes it a step further. He says, I saw all the, the sea gave up its dead. And in the ancient Near East, that would have been big, right? Because the sea would, would have been seen as sort of evil and chaotic. But also, if you think about it, if you're buried at sea, what happens to you? People would think, well, you're buried at sea, you get eaten by the fishes. They can't just go back and dig you up. So maybe you're good to go then. Not according to this. And death and Hades, right? That, that's just another way of, in some ways, just saying the grave gave up its dead. So in, in other words, no matter where you are, even if you thought you could skate by being buried at sea or thought you could skate by being buried this way or that way, every human being alive will come and appear before that throne. All of the dead. Everybody. Every man, woman, and child one day will have to stand face to face with Jesus. And did you notice what else was there? It wasn't just the dead, but all these books were there. And it says the dead, that as they appeared before him, the books started to be opened. 
And what's the best explanation of what those books are? There were all these books, and then there was the book of life, singular. And basically the books were probably some version of your biography and my biography. In other words, Jesus is standing there. He's got this objective standard by which he's going to judge God's law, your own conscience. And he says, all right, Tommy, you and me. This your book? Yeah, it's your book, okay. What do you think it's going to say? How do you feel about this? You feeling good? I am. I'm Jesus. Because what does it say? It says, the books were opened and each person was judged according to what? What was written inside those books? And so the question is this, have we gotten all the way to the end of Revelation? You see, up to this point, if you've ever heard me preach, what you hear from me, I hope, is grace, 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 grace. That there's nothing you can do in order to earn your salvation. And now, Tommy, are you saying we get to the very end of the book of Revelation and it's sort of like trapdoor? It's a surprise. Surprise, it really is by works. Surprise, really, I told you it was by grace, but at the end, you're still going to have to stand before Jesus and he's still going to open the books and he's still going to judge you according to your deeds. Is that right? Is that what you're saying to me? And the answer is absolutely. But the question is, what deeds is he judging you by? Or what, what, why is he even doing that? You see, the question is whether or not works are being taught here or works are even important. And the answer is yes. <clears throat> Remember what the book of James said? He says, you have faith. He says, I tell you what, I show you my faith by my works. In other words, even if you are a Christian and Jesus opens that book, what he should see in there is evidence of the fact that you trusted Jesus. In other words, you could say that I trust Jesus, but when you look at your life, does it really bear that out? Are you a different person for having trusted him? Are you becoming a different person for having trusted him? Does it affect what you do in every single area of your life? I mean, this isn't a stewardship sermon, but one easy place to look is look at the way you spend your money. Look at the way you utilize what God has given you. Does the fact that you know Jesus, if he opens up that book, does it say, wow, Tommy, when you trusted me, everything changed for you. Everything. You used to be selfish and greedy, and now look at you. Still a little bit selfish and greedy, but you're better than you were at the beginning. You changed because of what I did in your life. And ask yourself that question. Am I becoming, as a result of knowing Jesus, is he going to open the book and not say, Tommy was a perfectly and utterly humble person? Clearly not. But does he say, open that book and it says, man, when you started, you should have seen yourself. And now, you're more humble. I had to kick you around a little bit to make that happen, but it worked. In other words, when Jesus opens this book, the book of life, not the book of life, these books on you, is there any evidence at all that you have trusted him? I'll be honest with you. One of the things that really worries me as a pastor in church is gossip. If your life is defined by gossip, ask yourself, is that what I want open when the, book, when the books are open on me? Is it that? Because what that does is it causes other people to gossip and it causes other sin to happen. And as a pastor, it worries me because we embrace that. You see, everything that we've done will be in those books. And the question is, are you willing to have them be opened? And if you're not willing to have them open, what do we think then? You see, because judgment is, is final and judgment is, is impartial, but re- really at the end of it, um, or is it final at the end? 
You know, is there any hope? What if I've opened that? You know, you're thinking, some of you are thinking right now and saying, God, I hope he never opens that book. I don't want him to see what I've done. Well, remember the whole thing about the white throne is he already sees what you've done. He knows who you, what you've done right now. And the, the interesting thing about the finality of judgment, once you get to the end of this passage, is the fact that the book of life pops up again. But there's something even as important in verse 14. So let me read to you verse 14 and 15. He says, And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So on one hand, remember the death and Hades showed up all the way back at the four horsemen. And death and Hades are just are symbolic of the grave, that the grave was overtaking these people. And what's amazing about this passage is death and Hades give up the, their dead. But then Jesus, you, you get this sense, symbolic, Jesus looks down and says, whoa, 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 I'm not finished with you yet either. In other words, even death and Hades experience judgment because of the work of Jesus on the cross. I mean, we say it all the time that he's conquered death and he has conquered uh, God's judgment and all these things in Hades. But at the end of all time, he will literally take them up and throw them aside. That death and Hades no longer exist. And it was breathtaking as I read this. There were times in my office this week where I would become emotional. There's a commentator named Mount, Mount, M-O-U-N-C-E. He said, at, at long last, sin's uh, hegemony over death, or sin's hegemony over the human race is ended. In other words, sin is gone. Don't you long for a time when sin is gone? Don't you long for a time when you can wake up in the morning and things are exactly the way they are supposed to be? That you, you don't have to worry about being sinned against by other people. You don't have to always wonder what's going to happen. If someone's really for you or against you, you don't have to worry about your own heart. What the end of this passage says is that day is coming too. That even death and Hades will be cast into the lake of fire forever. But they won't be alone. Remember in chapter 19 we saw that the beast and the false prophet are in the lake of fire. We also saw that Satan is in the lake of fire. And who else is in the lake of fire? pretty simple it says it right there it says if anyone's name was not found and written in the book of life he was thrown into the lake of fire now one thing i wanted to point out to you first of all is this is that the difference between someone being thrown in the lake of fire and not being thrown in the lake of fire is not doesn't have anything to do with works did you notice that judgment happens? He opens the books and, and it says he will judge them according to their deeds, but he didn't pass any sentence as a result of those deeds. The only sentence that is passed is on the basis of whether your name was written in the book of life. If it's in there, great. If it's not, lake of fire for you. And the question is, how do you get into the book of life? Remember in chapter 13, it was also called the Lamb's Book of Life. And the names that were in the book of life are there before the foundation of the world. So how does that work? If your name is in the book of life before the foundation of the world, why should I even bother doing anything? Because it doesn't matter, right? My name's in there or it's not in there. Well, the way you know your name is in the book of life is by what you read in those other books. 
You know your name is written in the book of life because of the change that has happened in your heart. And there is a tension here. And I told the first of us, whenever you want to, to, to not be challenged on a point, you just uh, uh, quote someone who's very famous and everyone respects, J.I. Packer, for example. How Packer makes sense of passages like this is basically he says that the door of heaven, as you're entering in the door of heaven, on the, over the, the top of it, it says, enter all ye who will. And as soon as you walk in and look back over your shoulder, what it says over the door is predestined before the foundation of the world. And which one is it? The answer is both. The answer is both. In other words, if you're here today, you need to think about the fact that someday you will stand in the presence of Jesus and have to give account And you won't just have to give account whether you're good or bad, but the question is, the book that you need to be worried about is the book of life. Is your name written in the book of life? Do those other books bear witness to what is written in the book of life? In other words, have you trusted Jesus? Do you know Jesus? And has he changed you? You see, what's interesting to me is is this point. You know, after our congregational meeting last week, People made some comments about um, attendance and things like that. And it got me thinking, and so I went back and did a little research on who doesn't attend our church anymore and why. And what was most interesting to me were there were 58 people I found who don't attend our church anymore since the last five years. And you know why they don't attend our church anymore? They're dead. They don't exist anymore. In other words, 10% of the congregation in the past five years does not hear anymore because they have passed away. And what's interesting is most of those people didn't expect it. Most of those people thought, gosh, I'll be there listening to Revelation 20, verses 1 through 11 through 15. And yet something happened in their lives. Some of them were, were much older, but still they didn't expect to pass away. Some of them were very much younger, and they didn't expect to pass away. And the point is just this. There's coming a time when there is no more time. In other words, in the book of Revelation, this is your last chance. This is the last chance for you to hear. Someday you will stand in front of the throne of Jesus, and you will have to say what you did with him. Did you trust him or not trust him? Did you put your faith in him or not put your faith in him? You could walk out of this church and get hit by a car. I don't want to sound like overly dramatic, but it's true. Anything could happen. And the question is, are you ready for it to happen? Because you see, the, the thing that, that is, I think, most interesting is when people begin to think about the lake of fire. The, the thing that is most dreadful for me about, being, about not being in the book of life, about not knowing Jesus, is what you hear in Matthew chapter 7. Remember Matthew chapter 7? When people come up to Jesus and they've been good religious people. And they say, well, you know, did we not cast out demons in your name and perform miracles in your name and all these kinds of things? What, what does he say to them? He doesn't say, depart from me, go to the lake of fire, thou sinner, something. What does he say? He just says, depart from me. In other words, the lake of fire is symbolic for something, but what is most dreadful about the lake of fire is simply this, that Jesus is not there with you. That the one who gave himself for you, the one who earned the record that you, des- that you didn't deserve and died for you and bore God's wrath for you, is not there with you. In other words, the only one who ever really loved you the way that, that love is supposed to be carried out 
won't be there with you on the basis of what you did or didn't do with him. As you leave here today, I want you to think about that. And I want you to think about it not only for yourself, but I'll tell you what drives me. It's that there are tens of thousands of people right in the area around us. And the question is, do you care about them? Does it matter that they will have to stand before the throne of Jesus? Does it matter at all? Because if it does, then we have to make some changes around here. If it doesn't, we don't. Think about that. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would, just, uh, you would give us passion, and not just passion for the loss, but passion for the fact that final judgment is coming, that every human being that we know will stand before you, and they will either know you or won't know you. And I pray, Father, that anyone here who doesn't know you would not leave here without trusting Jesus, but I also pray that you would impassion those of us who maybe have been sitting on our hands, those of us who, who have been... Uh, just upset with any number of things and passion us that we might see people come to know Jesus. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen and amen.